when I was 34, I was bit on this sort of uh, schedule, but now it's a little harder, you know, it's, it's a, 64 now. So, uh, so that's all, that, that's, that's all. And I look, the, the, the good news is there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of crazy press. I mean, I don't know if you saw the New York Times this morning. I did. I, I did. In fact, it's crazy. Good. Complex and untrendy. <laughs> yeah. It was a pretty good write up. It you couldn't, yeah. It's as if we paid him. How do you feel about that as a headline? Oh, it's fine. Look, it's, it, uh, yeah, the, the best part about it is that's why Bruce Hornsby's record is so good. You know, that's yeah. the end of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously I like that part. Yeah, I mean. The, the whole, it's all fine. Yeah. It's, but I, I guess I asked from the standpoint of, you know, you don't strike me as somebody who has been too concerned with being trendy over the years. No, of course not. No, I've just followed my own path. I've just followed my own inspiration, my own passion. I'm always looking for the chills. I'm looking to be moved by music that I hear, looking for adventurous music, looking to always improve, a lifelong student. And so trendy, I have no idea, you know? And and also, I always felt that I would feel a little stupid uh, yeah. trying to be au courant, you know? And so I never bothered. I mean, I guess it could be said because uh, this this you could you could sort of uh, in a facetious way call this Bruce this uh, this record Uncle Bruce and his kids because it's mm-hmm. it's it's me plus these young great musicians from the sort of underground the alternative world the indie world that are populating this record uh, my guess my guest list is almost exclusively that group of people of mid to late 30s young musicians and uh, so it could be said oh this is his indie moment and and that's been said and i wouldn't argue with that i think most of the most interesting music made in the popular music area today is coming from that uh that indie uh indie area uh the, the dirty projectors i think are fantastic uh, a group Palm, for instance, if you've heard of them. So I could just keep naming them. Joanna Newsom. There's so many very interesting and unique, uh, singular, uh, idiosyncratic, iconoclastic musicians out there. So that's what I, I gravitate to that. I'm looking for something I haven't heard for, uh, heard uh, a sound that I haven't heard. I'm trying to make my music, in my music, I'm trying to make a sound that I've never heard before. And that's hence this record. How do you go from hearing something and liking it to actually collaborating with those one of those people on record? Well, often often this is the collaborations in my career have come from the other person, not mm-hmm. from me. I've populated my own records for years with with who I, uh, a musician list who I consider an yeah. amazing amazing group of people for many years from from my third record on up on until today. But so often the people that I met who I ended up subsequently asking to play on my records, they were often people who had asked me initially before this to work for them, whether it was Garcia, the dead called me to, to open for them. You could keep going. Branford Marsalis, Spike Lee, you just, just keep naming them. And, and in this case of, of Justin Vernon from Bon Iver, he called me originally as well to ask me to be to do a duet with him for this large Day of the Dead indie Grateful Dead uh, tribute mm. record, or 10 records. It was a massive compilation. He wanted to go straight to the source. Well, yeah, but more specifically, he was a big fan of our first live record from 2001 or two, uh, Here Come the Noisemakers, which featured our version of Black Muddy River, one of the great Garcia Hunter ballads. And he was really interested. He really that that version moved him. 
So he wanted to, as you say, go to the source and and do a duet with the guy who did that uh, for this record. And that was the first time we worked together in 2015, four years ago. It's an interesting record, not just from the standpoint of who you collaborated with, but also how the genesis of the album. Yes. My two hats I wear, the singer-songwriter hat and the film composer hat. You wear a lot of hats. I've looked looked at your resume, sir. You wear many hats. Well, maybe stylistically. Yeah. But people think it's so it's so so far afield. But if you really think about it, uh, the seeds of all of this, or most of it, were sown on my first record. Obviously, I made my forays with Ricky Skaggs into mm-hmm. the bluegrass world, and before that, with the Dirt Band in the late '80s, uh, Randy Scruggs in the mid '90s. But most intensely with Ricky, and I love those records. We made two records: a studio record and a the live record, Cluck Old Hen. But our first record pointed in this direction. I was playing accordion and hammer dulcimer, and we had mm-hmm. the great David Masfield playing fiddle mandolin. We were doing our version, what we thought of our, was our version of the band, you know, Levon yeah. Helm and yeah. Robbie Robertson, which was a very American roots yeah. uh, feeling. Not too far afield from the dead in some ways. No, no, not at all. And so, uh, you're right. So they have that in common, and which, which mm-hmm. and that was something that that I loved about the dead. The same type of American folk feeling. It really does feel like the two clear roots of most of what you do are the folk side and the jazz side. That's right. Uh, but the, but increasingly, much to the chagrin of a lot of my audience, increasingly the modern classical thing has been a big part of my interests, musical interests. Avant garde, weird time signatures. Yeah, just atonal music, yeah. dissonant music, black note music, uh, black and white notes music, rather than standard white note mm-hmm. music. And look, I've I love writing in that in that very uh, sort of simple language as well. I like writing white note music too. So a lot of my favorite songs I've ever written are the simplest ones. I also like to move into a, a more obscure sort of uh, inscrutable astringent <laughs> musical mm-hmm. word uh, world. And so this record's mostly toward the end. I put these on the end, the bitonal pop song Blinding Light of Dreams, which is number 8. And also the last song, the song I wrote with Hunter, Robert Hunter from the Dead, a great lyricist yeah. from the Dead. That's called Take You There and the the middle section, the bridge section is completely atonal. It's a very tonal song. And then all of a sudden, it just goes to hey, hey, a lot of people have called it my Frank Zappa moment of the record. Uh, so this record deals with that area of classical music, which is the very dissonant sort of twelve-tone atonal music inspired by composers like Elliot Carter, Georgi Ligeti, the great Hungarian composer, the great French composer Machamp, and, and, and etc. And then there's the the modern minimalist uh, group. Of, of musicians, uh, Steve Reich, uh, John Adams, Philip Glass, and that's well heard in a lot of the, the music that Why Music plays on our record, also on Take You There, also on Voyager One. It just keeps going. So, so those fractals with the piano I'm playing is very much coming from that sort of Reichian area. So, so you're saying you're saying uh, bluegrass and jazz, or yeah. country and folk, folk and jazz, and that's absolutely true. Again, har- harking back to the first record or referencing it again, there were these. This is sort of our version of the band, quote unquote, but also with all this piano playing that was very much coming from the jazz improvis- improvisational uh, history or tradition. So bluegrass and jazz, you're absolutely right. But then in the last many years, this other insidious <laughs> pandemonium has entered the fray. And to me, to a great effect, again, I get nasty letters all the time from people who go, why are you doing yeah. this? Why, why do you, I hate this. <laughs> so, the downside of having the hits that you've had is that 
that's the thing that people, a lot of people who casually follow you identify. Well, with you. if you choose to make it a downside, sure. I just obviously have never chosen yeah. and never allowed that to be a problem for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. But it's a bit of a prison to feel like you have to be constrained by the expectations of this audience that basically wants you to stay exactly the same from record to record. And that's obviously not been me. When you have a, a hit record like, you know, the way it is and, and the, the tracks off of that, it, is it hard? Is it hard not to want to chase that for a little while? Well, I consider my second record to be very much stylistically akin to my first. It was me trying to cement the feeling of, of this is my sound. You, whether you like it or not, you know who this is. Yeah. You know my, and, and that's, that's a hard trick to find your own sound. And it's an important thing to do early on. Well, it was important to me. I, I wanted to, I was always trying to, I got a late start. I got signed when at age 30, you know, because I took me a while to find an area that was unique to me. But it's a nice story. The reason I got signed, I got signed by the, beautifully enough, by the great former rhythm guitar player for the Zombies, the great British man, Paul Atkinson, signed me at RCA. And he didn't think, he didn't sign me because he thought it was a hit sound, that there were hits there. He signed me purely because it was the cassette that he couldn't take out of his car. He just loved it. It just moved him in a deep way. And so he signed me for the best reasons, totally not about commerce, totally about the music, totally about some notion of pop as art. And so I just, that, that's, that's beautiful for me. And the way it is was, was a fluke. It was a, it was thought of as a B-side before originally, then it hit, it broke in England. So at RCA Records, they really didn't know what a Bruce Hornsby hit, quote unquote, was supposed to sound like. Well, I guess they knew now, but since they all thought it was the B-side, Paul included, they left me alone and they didn't pressure me about, oh, where's the hit? Because they realized we don't know what the hell the hit is. <laughs> so that was nice for me. I didn't get that pressure for them really ever. And in my 18 years with that label. So that was uh, a really nice score for me because it was such a, a nice fluke, a wonderful accident that that happened. Would you describe yourself as being restless generally when it comes to being creative? Restless only in the sense that I'm only look, I'm always looking for new inspiration. It's not like I sit in, sit in a chair one day and go, okay, what next? What can I do that's completely different? It's never been that. It's always been about, it's much, much more organic than that. I mean, simply stated, uh, you know, i.e., Ricky Skaggs asked me to be part of his Bill Monroe tribute record in the early 2000s. And so I was, he always says I was the first, he was, I was the first one he asked, which would surprise a bluegrass audience to, yeah. to find out that I was yeah. the first person he asked. I was the first one to say yes. I was the first to record with them on this record, which is a great record. Joan Osborne has a great cut on there. So many great ones. And it was the first song on the album, a version of uh, the old traditional song, Darling Corey. It basically came to me after the session of recording Darling Corey, said, man, we had such a good time making this record. Would you ever consider making a, a, a full record, just the two of us? So it was an instant, yes, because Ricky Skaggs is a fantastic, transcendent musician and also a beautiful guy, uh, personally. We connected really naturally on a personal level as well as musical level. So there I went in the bluegrass area just because... A great guy, I collaborated with him, and he asked me to, to, to take it further. Mm -hmm. Same with the jazz record I made with Jack DeJanette and Christian McBride. They were sort of acquaintances, friends, sort of friends of mine for a certain time. And every time I'd run into them, they'd say, hey, man, where's the hit? When's the hit? When's the gig? When are we going to do something? 
So finally, I got around to developing. I said, well, I'm not ready yet, but give me time. I'm interested. Finally, I got around to trying to develop a way of playing that music that didn't sound like I was making a record doing my Bill Evans impression or my Chick Corea impression. I wanted it to sound like me because that why otherwise why do it? Why why show off that you can play a nice Bill Evansy reharmonization of an old standard? I, yeah. I just that's not interesting to me on an artistic level. So so I finally thought I'd figured out this sort of aesthetic move in this direction. Mm. And I called him. So I called him and said, I'm ready. And then we did it. So again, that was them reaching out to me. In Ricky's case, I said, that's great. Let's go. We didn't end up starting until another four years because we were both so busy. But uh, we started in, in 05 and came out in 07, as did the jazz record. Had a bluegrass record and a jazz record out on the same year, which was fun. Uh, again, so, uh, to, to answer your uh, further your initial question, it's it's not that I'm restless. It's just that I'm interested in lots of areas musically, and I get these great calls to collaborate in these areas over the years, and sometimes they end up being uh, resulting in a deeper collaboration, like the Skaggs Hornsby and like the Camp Meeting Trio that. Jeanette McBride Hornsby. There's a through line here. I mean, you know, wildly divergent music styles in a lot of ways, or even the film scoring. Yes, but but let's let's make yeah. one thing clear. Wildly, wildly divergent, say bluegrass and jazz, but they have one thing very much in common: bluegrass music and jazz music. They're both very much about virtuosity on your instrument. Now, the, the harmonic language of bluegrass yeah. is way simpler, triadic, one, four, five, a lot. Obviously, jazz is more complex more complex chord structures, more complex uh, chord movement, uh, chord progressions. But they're both about playing your instrument really well. And so so that's something they have very much in common. Christian sat in with Skaggs Hornsby one time, a benefit for Tony LaRusso in St. Louis, mm. and just crushed it, mm. blew everybody away, because Christian McBride's one of the great musicians in the world, and he could just come in in that uh, milieu and just shine. That actually, I think, gets to my next question, yeah. and it's something that bluegrass and jazz have in common. It relates to the virtuosity in that, in a lot of ways, they are solos-based. No question. Exactly what I meant. Again, the through line here between the music, the film scoring, all these things is is collaboration. And yes. That seems inc- incredibly deeply important to what you do. Again, it wasn't something I was always setting out to do. I wasn't trying to be the great collaborator mm. or <laughs> or a great collaborator. Uh, but it just happened. Again, Spike Lee is a perfect example. I met him through our mutual friend, Brantford, in 92. I asked him to, to, make, to make a video for me. I had a record coming out with a song about the first interracial romance in my town of Williamsburg, Virginia, and all the consternation it caused among the uh, the white city fathers. Mm-hmm. You know, the old town fathers are up in arms. The city council is very alarmed. Cousins and uncles are having fits. Predictors of doom think this is it. And so I thought he would... He would do that well. He was interested in doing it. So that's the first thing we did. Then he asked me for an end title song two years later for his great movie Clockers. Shaka Khan and I were writing a song. Again, she called me and asked me if I would write a song with her. And so we did. And it ended up as this end title song. He asked me for another end title song six years later. He asked me for some incidental music in subsequent films in the early mid aughts, <laughs> 2000s. And then 2008, he calls me up and asked me to score to do a score for him for a ESPN documentary he was making on Kobe Bryant. It was called Kobe Doing Work, its own standalone documentary, out, uh, hour and a half, f- full length. Yeah. 
I think it was sort of a test for him, for an audition for me. He was seeing if I could do it. Did you know was, it at the time? I, no, he didn't say that. Yeah. So, but I just thought, well, I, I, let me try to do it. I've yeah. never done it. But that just started the last 11 years of me working for him in that capacity for probably well six or six or seven full scores and more incidental music here and there for, for other movies. And so that was the genesis of this record because I'd written all these cues for him over the years, over 230. And lots of times the, the music, the cues, cues are pieces of music that are used, uh, score, score music used behind a, a scene, in, in a scene. They're called in the in film parlance cues. So that's when I refer to that. I'm just really talking about a piece of instrumental writing that's part of your part of the score. So I wrote 230 plus pieces of music ranging from one minute long to five minutes long, and often the best of them to me, the ones that really got under my skin, I thought needed to be turned into songs, needed mm-hmm. to be expanded. And so finally, a year and a half, I had a I made a file of 14 of these cues, quote unquote and decided to start writing to them. And I had all this lyric input, inspiration from the reading I do. Mm-hmm. I had this notebook dedicated to actually writing down the material that I uh, on pages that I dog ear when you read a book and you and you find something that's really... Com- Pulling phrases yeah, and Yeah, phrasing ideas just and, ideas yeah. and, and tra- then trying to find my own way of saying it, paraphrase an idea or a thought. And so... My self-imposed charge was to marry the two, take this piece of music and marry this these lyrical ideas to that and create a song. So it was a completely new way of writing for me, and it, it resulted in this in this very different uh, type of record. It, it was, it's not – I didn't write in my standard mode. It was uh, taking me out of my sort of comfort zone. To, to great effect for me, it was moving me right away. The first song I wrote in this context was Absolute Zero. It was to a cue called A Minor Song that was used in the first season one Netflix series, She's Gotta Have It. Most of the cues on the record were cues that were never used by Spike, but a couple of them were, and this was one. And I had this idea about uh, a cryonic fantasy, a cryogenic fantasy, inspired by Don DeLillo's book Zero K, and it became the song Absolute Zero. And something about it just had some intangible quality that moved me and everyone I played it for, almost everyone I played it for. Some people went, hmm, what's that? It's a little spacey and weird. and I don't get it. But a lot of people thought, whoa, what's this? This is a different and a very new type of thing that you're doing. And so I just kept, I was inspired. I was getting chills working on it. And that's what you hope for. It's hard to give yourself chills. I was doing it a lot on this record. So led me down the path. It's almost the Burroughs cut-up approach, right, of, of finding two dissonant ideas and trying to fit right. them together. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a yeah. third thing at play. So William there, Burroughs. Yeah. Naked Lunch. Yeah. yeah. Right. There's the initial score. There's the, the literary influence. And yes. then there's the third piece of the collaborators. Mar- the marriage. Yes. But the collaborators, is oh. a, that's a whole other moving part. Well, that's just enhancing the music. Okay. These, these cues – are fairly are fairly musically complete ideas, mm. and because when you're writing for a particular particular project, you're trying to make it really finished. You, you're trying to make someone like it, you know. In this case, Spike. So it's a it's a pretty fully fleshed. The song is pretty it fully is. fleshed when you yes. bring it to a collaborator. Yes, it is, but it doesn't mean we they can't be enhanced. Sure by some amazing musicians like Why Music. How do you make sure that it's the right collaborator, that, that this is a Boney Bear song? or Oh, it's purely just your own aesthetic judgment. You just, 
Uh, I've always wanted to. I, I learned this from Robbie Robertson when we mm. wrote a song together. No, I actually called him. He's one of the guys okay. that didn't call me. I mean, if you're going to call yeah, somebody, yeah. Rob, Robbie Roberts is a good guy Well, to call. we were friends, yeah. and I knew he was rec- making his second solo record. This is the early 90s, making a second solo record, which was called uh, Storyville, sort of a New Orleans-based uh, thematic idea there. And uh, so I had this idea that I thought he might like. It was based on an old – I played high school basketball down in Hampton, Newport News, in my town of Williamsburg. But most of the league was in Hampton, Newport News, which was sort of the hood where we were playing. And so when we went down to play in Hampton, at Hampton High School and Kickatan High School and Bethel and on on uh, Pembroke, they thought we were just a bunch of country bumpkins. You know, they didn't realize that two or three of the kids were professors' sons, professors of, at William and Mary, who were reading, you know, Leon Uris QB seven in the, in the stands during the JV game. <laughs> Harley country boys. Yeah. So they would chant. Had a great chant. The student sections of, say, Kickatan High School would chant at us, go back, go back, go back to your woods, go back, go back, you know, sort mm-hmm. of a, a chant saying, you guys are, y'all country and yeah. get the hell yeah. on. So I thought, I just thought that was a fun idea for a song. I pitched, I pitched it to Robbie with some music and he went, yeah, let's go. Uh, so I got a, had a great experience with him. I consider that he's a great record maker. His first solo album was just uh, some of it was just transcendent. So he did, but the band was pretty good too. I'm gonna... Well, I'm sorry, no, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm talking I'm... about the, the reason. His more recent yeah. thing. The band yeah, yeah, is yeah. obviously iconic, yeah. and it's so great. I'm just saying what yeah. he had just, what he had just done at this time was to me very moving. Fallen Angel, Broken Arrow, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere down the Crazy River. So many great ones. So I got to see how he made records because I yeah. in, firsthand because we were making a record together. We went down to New Orleans and recorded the song with the Meters. We had a great experience. Then I went over, went up to Bearsville and Woodstock and had a great hang with him because he used to live there. So he walked down the street and knows everybody. Yeah. And then we made a video in New Orleans. We did Saturday Night Live together. We went to Seville, Spain and played a big festival there. I helped him with his band. But so he had, he had one great idea that, that resonated with me. He said, I like to cast my records like a film director would. Here's a piece of music, and who do I think mm. would sound amazing? And again, I use the word enhance the sound, enhance the, the record. So I just took that as my <laughs> my new outlook yep. as well. So my next, next record, I'd already done it. It was not like this was completely new. My record that I'd made before I worked with Robbie. Oh, we had a, we had Garcia and Wayne Shorter and Sean Colvin and Bela Fleck. I'm sure I'm leaving out somebody fantastic, but uh, needless to say, it's sure. a great, great guest list. Yeah. And then the next record, the post-Robbie record was Harbor Lights, which had Pat Metheny and Branford using more of the jazz language in Harbor Lights. So these guys were, per- these great musicians were perfect for it. For me, Garcia again, Phil Collins did some great percussion and vocals on some things. Um, Bonnie Raitt was just crazy good on a couple of songs. John Bigham from Fishbone. Again, a, dis- <laughs> a disparate list. What, so that, so fast forward 25 years later to, to absolute zero, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm, I'm casting my record as I would think a film director would. But in this case, I'm working with a lot of these younger musicians that I've met, mostly through Justin and his great scene, uh, in Wisconsin and every and all over, so I met. Why well, I played his festival, Eau Claire Music and Arts Festival, in, in 2016. It was a fantastic festival. They have a modern classical stage, so obviously it's perfect for me. I'm interested in all that, and so I loved that. But I met the Staves and Why Music and and Justin's band, etc. So 
so then they came in, and now it's Dave's and Y Music and Justin and some more of his, his great band, Bonnie Vare band, Sean Carey, Mike Lewis, just keep going, JT Bates, Jeremy Ilvesacker. These were all people I met, and they're just, they have something to offer. They bring something very arresting and deep with great gravitas. The way they make records out there, I think their records are really something special. So, yes, I was, I'm so lucky, so blessed to be able to then be asked by those guys to come out to, to their place in Wisconsin and work. And all these guys were around. And so that, that spawned Cast Off and a little bit of the song Meds. And then Why Music is on five songs. So it's a very organic process. It's not me sitting around going, okay, what, what's next? It's always this amorphous, ever-evolving, ever-moving musical community and, or communities that I get drawn, that I become, I got, I get asked to be, to, to, to enter. And so look, it's nice and, uh, and creates hopefully something new and arresting. How much is your music influenced by the current moment? Um, I mean, is this, uh, is this a political record in oh, you any mean way? Lyrically, uh, yeah. No, I have what I call a, pop protest song that I'm writing. I'm pretty far down the path of my next record. It, it's hard to not be influenced by all what's happening. Well, that's right. But you have to, I think it, you have to be careful with it because it's so easy to just spout off yeah. something that's a, a very literal critique. And I don't find much art in that. And you don't want to date it necessarily. Yeah, well, that, that too, that's yeah. a, a very good point. So, uh, so this record, I wouldn't say, is so political. There's some references to uh, references to racism in a small town, yeah. but you could write that any time. And, in and you have been writing that for a while. Uh, now. Well, I, I've, I've you come been, back to it. I've, yeah, but very little, just, yeah. just obliquely. It's not. Yeah. I'm not leading with it at all. You'd be hard pressed to necessarily identify the song mm. that I'm referring to. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that's yeah, that's it. When the album's out, when you're doing press around it. Have you already moved on to the next thing? Are you already? Oh, I have. Yeah. Yes, I'm I'm far, pretty far down the road. I've got ten things that are ready to be uh, enhanced by the outside crowd, and so that's great fun. It keeps me engaged. I had about two and a half months where I didn't have a lot going on at the beginning of the year, so I said, "Look, this is what I like to do. This is what I want to do. Dive, try to dive down deep again." It surprises me to hear that there's ever a point in your life when you don't have a lot to do because you seem to be constantly producing things and you seem to be a very busy guy. I think that's true. <laughs> Simple as that. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's that's a, a, a fair fair to say. Do you ever see a point where you slow down or or stop creating? Um, not yet. No, I don't. No, I really don't. It, again, like I just said it a couple of minutes ago, it's what I like to do the most. I practice every day difficult pieces mm. that I regularly inflict on my poor unsuspecting audience. Mm -hmm. Some of them, a few of them really are entranced. Well, maybe that's too strong a word. They're at least semi-interested. A whole lot of them go, uh, tell me when this is over. <laughs> tell me when he plays a song I like. I know. And I do that too. I, I consider myself to be pretty nice to the softcore audience, the, soft, the section of my audience that really stopped listening to me after 1990, mm. say, 1986 to 90, and then that was it. Because I still play the, uh, those old hits. Maybe you're likely to get four or five of them every night, and I think that's pretty nice. <laughs> I think I'm kind. 
the, the people who write me nasty letters, they obviously don't agree with me. <laughs> but look, I, I try to do what I can to, to placate that person at least a bit. I don't, not sure I play any of the songs exactly like the old record anymore, but I think you'd recognize them a little. I, I think so. Hope so. <laughs> there you go. That was a great Bruce Hornsby. His new record, Absolute Zero, is out now. He's also on tour. I just saw him last week. Highly recommend you check out the show. Thanks so much to him. Really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, or on Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rolcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. And that's about all we got for now, so stick around because we're going to be back in a few short days with another episode of R.I.Y.L.